This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans 2, 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have, written, who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inward, inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's take our seats, take our Bibles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2, the passage that Alex just read. We're going to work through all, uh, all of this chapter, all the way to the end of this chapter, from verse 17 to verse 29. Let me start with this. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, there's this amazing but heartbreaking story about the Israelites losing a battle. It was during the time of Eli the priest and his young understudy Samuel. The Israelites were losing a battle to the Philistines and so the elders of Israel got this bright idea, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant was, it was this, this ornate box. I brought you a, or have a picture here of a replica of what it looked like in that day. Um, yeah, it was this, this ornate box that contained the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and a few other things. It was a holy instrument used by the priests. It resided in the Holy of Holies in the Tabernacle of the Lord. So the Israelites decided, let's go get the Ark. You know, it, it'll give us victory in battle, just like it did Joshua when he entered into the Promised Land. Well, let me just say that that, that was not a good plan. <laughs> it was not a good plan. And I think that whole situation reveals the, uh, the low ebb, the, the low spiritual state of the Israelites at that time, that their leaders, that their elders would make this suggestion, this, can I say it, idiotic plan to put the Ark of the Covenant in front of the soldiers. So the Israelites, they took the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. Actually, Eli's two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, took the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield. That's not a good plan either. When they got to the battlefield, the soldiers, when they first saw the ark, they, they shouted in, in excitement. You know, we've got the ark. We're going to win now. We'll be unstoppable. And they, they hooted and they hollered and they went off to battle with this, you know, this adrenalized rush of excitement, thinking now that they had confidence they were going to defeat their enemy. We've got the ark. They ran off to battle. And do you know what happened next? They promptly and decisively got whomped. That's what happened. And actually the Bible says that 
30,000 of their soldiers were slaughtered. And even worse, the Ark of the Covenant, their talisman, that was going to assure them victory. It was captured by the Philistines, and it's got kind of a life of its own if you follow the, the story in Samuel. They had a, what happened there? They had a false sense of security in this ark, this instrument that was used for holy purposes. You know, they would sprinkle on the Ark of the Covenant the blood of the sacrifice once a year, this, this atonement ritual. But this instrument used for holy purposes became a rabbit's foot for the Israelites. And they went off to war with it, and it gave them a false sense of security. Speaking of the Ark of the Covenant, one of my favorite cinematic moments is the first Indiana Jones movie. Keep in mind, before I give you this illustration, 1 Samuel 4, that's history. Indiana Jones, not so much. <laughs> it's fiction. My favorite moment in that movie is when the, you know, the Nazis opened up the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember the movie. They wanted to weaponize the Ark. They, they thought that the ark was going to lead them to great military victories, just like Joshua. But then they opened it up, and it turned on them, and it melted their faces off. That was a great moment. I really... <laughs> Don't mess with the Lord. What happened? They, they had a false sense of security. They thought the ark was going to save them and empower them, and instead it... It destroyed them. Now, what is Romans 2, 17 through 29 about? The passage that Alex just read. What's, what's that about? There's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. It's not about the Ark of the Covenant. What's this passage about? It's about a false sense of security. That's what it's about. It's about people, specifically Jews in Paul's day, trusting in something other than Christ for their righteous standing before God. And it's a mistake Paul says it's a mistake. It's a false sense of security. Trusting in the law, trusting in your own ethnicity, trusting in your morality, trusting in your heritage, trusting in circumcision. It's a mistake. It's a false sense of security. You know, we, we this morning as Gentiles, we, we could laugh and we could say, oh, those silly Israelites in the Old Testament trusting in the Ark of the Covenant, how could they be so superstitious like that? And we could say about the Jews in Paul's day, those, those silly Jews trusting in the law, trusting in their own heritage. How could they be so foolish? But careful now, Gentiles, don't be naive. Don't be naive. We get a false sense of security sometimes in our lives too, in our modern day 2019 world, right? I'll try to point some of these out to you as we work through the text this morning. So here we go. Here's your outline for this morning. Today, I want to give you five ways that we find security in something other than faith in Christ. Five ways, church, that we find security in something other than faith in Christ. Here's the first one. False security in heritage. False security in heritage. I'll just tell you, I... I don't always speak about this, but, but I want to just tell you this morning that I have a great heritage. I know that's not true of everybody in this room. I have a great heritage of faith, especially on the Caffey side of my family. My great-granddaddy, Rupert, was a lay preacher in Seminole, Texas. I have his King James Bible in my office. Come by sometime. I'll show it to you. I'm very proud of it. And, you know, my grandma, she, she loved the Lord. She loved church. She told us about her love for the Lord and the love for the church all the time. 
My parents are strong Christians. You guys know that. They raised me going to church every Sunday. They took me to church every Wednesday night, too, for Awanas. They, I, I think they, needed, they knew I needed more help. They put me in a Christian school that, that taught Abeka. Abeka. You know, you know parents are serious if they have a Becca curriculum, right? I told my wife the other day, I'm a Becca boy in a Becca world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. That's me. <laughs> That's my heritage. I'm proud of that heritage. And here's my point. What does that mean for my salvation? What does that mean for me following Christ, knowing Christ, being saved? It means nothing. It means nothing. I have to own that. I have to internalize that. I have to personalize that faith that's been passed on to me. Right? Right? Paul says here in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, now we won't get to the punchline of Paul's argument here, but I'll, just for the sake of argument, let me, let me explain what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying in verse 17 that, that heritage isn't enough. It's not enough. It's false security. I'm a Jew, says the Jew in Paul's day. I, I rely on the law. I boast in God. Paul's eventually going to say that's not good enough. Your ethnicity won't save you. Your reliance on the law won't save you. Your spiritual heritage won't save you. Paul has actually dealt with that already in verse 12, and he, he says that the law for the Jew actually makes their judgment worse because they were given the law and they will be judged by the law. So false security and heritage, Paul, here's number two, and Paul goes right into this argument in verse 13. There's also false security in education. You know, I laugh out loud sometimes when I hear politicians mainly say that the cure for what ails our world is education. If we just had more education. The problem with that argument is some of the most despicable people in the history of the world have been highly educated people. I read a book once called Intellectuals by Paul Johnson, and that book terrified me. Terrified me. Because, you know, in that book, he talks about these, these highly educated but incredibly dangerous people that have come into our world, people like Karl Marx and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Ernest Hemingway and Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre. That book was just a little reminder to me that education isn't always the solution to our world's problems. And Paul says here that education has become, for the Jews, a false sense of security. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, look at verse 18, and know his will and improve what is excellent because you are educated, you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, that's a good thing, by the way, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let me just make a point here. You know, with these statements, is Paul being sarcastic here, talking like this? Is he... I don't think so. The Jews were in many ways an educated, ancient people. And there was a responsibility that they had to give light to the world. Isaiah speaks about the Gentiles being, the, the Jews being a light to the Gentiles. Moses even speaks about that before in the Pentateuch. And, and what, what do we know about the, the uh, Abrahamic covenant? God told 
Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. They were actually to be a light to the, this is good, this is good. He's not being sarcastic here. They studied the law, the ancient Jewish people. They, they memorized the law. They mused on the law. They were a people of the book. And that's a good thing. They were, they were people of the book. Those of you, and by the way, you know, Jewish people have been like that throughout history. Those of you who have researched Jewish culture, you know that, that they have always been high on education. They've consistently, Jews have been the best lawyers, the best doctors, the best scholars throughout the centuries. I heard a story once about David Ben-Gurion. I haven't been able to verify this quote, but reportedly David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel in the 20th century, he appeared once before parliament in England and one English politician in the House of Lords said, why should we listen to this man? He's nothing but a Jew. And Ben-Gurion said, sir, my people were reading from the law of Moses when your people were naked in the woods of Britain. That's good. I like that. That's an insult. And that, that summarizes the mentality of the Jewish people even in Paul's day. They had the law of Moses. They had the book. They were reading from the book when other pagans were naked in the woods. They were guides to the blind. They were instructors of the foolish. They had the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, which is great. That's great. Except for the fact that knowledge of the law doesn't save you. That's what Paul's saying here. It doesn't save you. We dealt with this last week. Knowledge isn't enough. Knowing isn't enough. The doers of the law are justified, not the hearers, the doers. And if you're going to be saved by the law, you have to do it perfectly, perfectly. Because nobody can do it perfectly, it's a false sense of security. We need another way. We need another way. And to that you might say, all right, well, Pastor Tony, how does this apply to us? We're not Jews here, most of us anyway. We're, we're not even that big on education. I got C's and D's in school, Pastor Tony. How does this apply to me? Here's how it applies to you. Let me quote the Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson. You can read this on the screen. Ferguson says, you can sit underneath the most, the most orthodox ministry in the entire world and say to others, we have secured the word of God in our church, not like you people. And the word of God isn't really secured in your heart because you take it and leave it. You play with it. You ignore it. Ferguson says it's possible to have perfect doctrine and a putrid heart true? Yeah, it is true. I've seen it. Education can give you a false sense of security. So can having the right doctrines. So can attending a Bible preaching church. That's not what saves you. Attending this church, hearing me preach and get all animated every Sunday. That's not what saves you. We need another way. Here's another false sense of security. Write this down as number three. There's false security and morality. So false security and morality. And this, this is a big one, isn't it? This isn't just a Jewish thing. This is something that we as well in our day, we like to think of ourselves in terms of more moral than the other person. We trust in our morality, or you might say our, this relative sense of morality, I'm more moral than that guy over there. So, so I'm good. We don't hold ourselves to the moral standard of Jesus Christ or the God who is perfect and holy. Paul says in verse 21, here's the payoff for what's, what Paul's been arguing. He says, you then who teach others, 
do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, idols, do you rob temples? Now let me explain that. In Paul's day, it had become acceptable for Jews to steal idols and melt down the precious metals from those idols and use it for other purposes. At one time in Jewish society, that was prohibited. But according to Doug Moo, their, their horror concerning the idolatry of the Gentiles was insincere, insincere because they, they would use the gold and precious metals from those idols for their purposes. They abhorred idols, but they re- really didn't abhor idols. That's what Paul's getting at here. They, they just pretended to abhor idols. They're just pretending. What does Jesus call that? What do we call that? It's hypocrisy. Verse 23, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. You boast in the law. It, that's an interesting statement right there. Let's just think about this for a moment. Is it okay to boast? Is it okay to boast? It's, does the Bible ever forbid boasting? Does God ever forbid boasting? Actually, this might surprise some of you. He, he doesn't. There's as much positive in the New Testament about boasting as there is negative in the New Testament about boasting. You just got to boast in the right things. You got to boast in the right things. I, I looked up the word. Do y'all know what this word boast means? I looked this up just to get a sense for what it means in English. And I, I found this at, you know, Miriam Webster's online dictionary. Here's the definition I got. First of all, the noun, a statement expressing excessive pride in oneself. Really? And then here's the verb. The verb means to praise oneself extravagantly in speech or to speak or assert with excessive pride. I mean, there's more definitions there, and I think those more definitions are what the Bible is speaking of, but I, I can see why there's confusion about boasting. Why, why we might say, well, boasting is sinful, obviously. Look at that. Well, we've got to get behind this English word and these English definitions to the, the Greek that's behind this word, and the Greek word is kaokomai. And it means to boast or brag about, but it also has this nuance to rejoice in or to glory in. That's not bad. Let me give you some examples of how it can be good. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in kaokumai. We boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We do that, says Paul. This is a good thing to boast in this way. Here's another example. 1 Corinthians 1.31. Let the one who boasts. If you're going to boast, boast in this. Let the one who boasts, Kaokamai, boast in the Lord. Paul says in Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to boast in that. In fact, I do every Sunday and every other day. I'm going to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Later, later on in Romans 5, we'll get to this in a few months, Paul says, through Jesus we also have obtained by faith into the grace in which we now stand and we rejoice, says Paul. That's that same Greek word, kaukomai. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Everybody got it? Is it okay to boast? You just got to boast in the right things, even in the Old Testament. Jeremiah said this. This is one of my favorite passages from the prophets. Jeremiah said, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast. In the LXX, that's kaukamai. 
In Hebrew, that's the word hallel. We get our word hallelujah from. We praise. Let, let not the man praise or boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord. The Jews, according to Paul, were boasting in the law and their wisdom and their knowledge of the law. They were boasting in their education. And that's not even the biggest issue going on here. They're, they're, off, they're off with their boasting. But the bigger issue here is their, is the, what is it? It's the age-old problem of hypocrisy. Look at verse 23 again. You who boast in the law, that's not even the worst thing. You dishonor God by breaking the law. You preach against stealing. Do you steal? You preach against adultery. Are you committing adultery? You're doing the things that you're preaching against. You don't practice what you preach. What did Jesus say about this? What did Jesus say? You you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. He said to the Pharisee leaders, he said this, this is comical actually, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Can you imagine that, Those, these little herbs, you know, that you get out of your garden, you're kind of cutting a tenth of them and, you know, giving them, it's, it's comical what Jesus is saying here. They were so fastidious about their, their, their herbs in their garden. And they were ignoring the greater things of the law, neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. The same kind of hypocrisy is taking place in Paul's day, speaking to the Jews. In this commentary on Romans, John Stott, he mentions a rabbi, Ben Zakkai, a contemporary of Paul's, who says similarly to Paul, he, he bewails in his day the increase of murder, and adultery and sexual vice and commercial and judicial corruption, bitter sectarian strife and other evils that were happening in the Jewish community. It wasn't just Paul that was identifying these things. Paul says you preach against stealing, but you steal. You preach against adultery, but you commit adultery. You condemn yourselves. You're making my argument for me, says Paul. And then he says, look at verse 24. Verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Whew. That's about the strongest condemnation. That's about the most insulting thing that you could ever say to a Jew. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you went into a synagogue and said that, you're, it's possible that you could get a beat down for saying that. Paul is straight up throwing shade on these hypocritical Jews, and Paul can get away with it because he's a Jew himself. Paul can get away with it because he loves the Jews, and he's not the first Jew to say this either, by the way. Paul's quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 52, verse 5, 700 years before Paul said this, Isaiah said this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And why does Paul say it? I'm going to wrestle with this for a little bit. Why does Paul, you know, does Paul just like insulting people? 
What, is he attacking their self-esteem? Is he guilty of hate speech here? No, Paul loves the Jewish people. He loves his own race, just like you love Americans. Just like I love being a Scots-Irish American. And he, as a Jew, who loves the Jew, wants them to know the truth. In fact, Paul says later in Romans, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, i.e. the Jews. Paul's not saying these things because he's anti-Semitic. He's not saying these things because he's prejudiced. He doesn't hate Jews. He is a Jew. He's a Jew saved by the blood of Jesus. And he wants other Jews like him to be saved too. By the way, let me just say this about Romans 1 through 3. Paul is an equal opportunity offender in Romans 1 through 3. Everybody gets offended. Jews and Gentiles both. If you're not offended after reading Romans 1 through 3, you're not reading it right. All of us stand guilty before a holy, righteous God. We are all headed for hell. That's the point of Romans 1 through 3. We are holy, unholy. The gospel is offensive. You have to feel the weight of that. Paul wants to awaken you to the fact that you are a sinner who needs Jesus. Your morality won't save you. Your heritage won't save you. Your education won't save you. You need another way. The Jews in Paul's day, the Jews in our day, need another way. We need another way. Write this down as number four. Here's a fourth way that people find security in something other than Christ. False security and ritual. False security and ritual. Wasn't our baptism service last week fantastic wasn't it now I found myself this last week just going on Facebook and watching the video and watching the pictures of our kids and it's I mean it's so exciting hearing their testimonies and and seeing the way the Lord is shaping their heart and seeing their seeing them get dunked underwater it's so fun isn't it it's one of my favorite things about being a pastor I get to do that and, you know, as I was watching those videos on Facebook and just thinking about that, here's the thought that came to mind. It's working. <laughs> what we're doing is working. We're fulfilling the Great Commission. God has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're doing it. It's happening here. That, that, that vision that people had 11, 12 years ago to plant a church that, that does the work of Jesus, the Great Commission, it's happening. By the way, November, it's our 11th anniversary as a church. Did you know that, church? Happy anniversary, Harvest Decatur. Let's turn your neighbor right now and say, happy anniversary. We're 11 years old, and we are doing what God has called us to do. I love baptisms. I love baptisms. I love what we did last week. I love communion. Don't you love communion? I love reading the Bible. I love preaching the Bible. I love praying to God. I love praying with the worship team before the service. I love coming to the church and worshiping God. Worship was fantastic this morning. I love ritual. Can I say it that way? I know that's, a, that's like a dirty word in some circles, but I, I love it. 
I love these, these, these disciplines of the faith that I get to be a part of. Bible reading and prayer and evangelism and fellowship. I get to be a part of that. I love the ordinances of the church. Baptism and communion. But here's my point in all this, and I want you to hear me. None of those things, none of them save you from your sin. Are y'all with me? It pains me to say that because I love those things so much. But you need to know, and I need to tell you as a pastor, nobody gets saved by baptism. That's the outward work. That's, that's the, baptism is the, the outward sign of that inward work that God has done in those kids' hearts, in your heart when you got baptized. Nobody's getting saved by that or staying saved. Those disciplines, those rituals, those traditions, those outworkings of your faith are only important if you have saving faith in Christ. Okay, we're clear on that? Paul doesn't talk about those things directly here. Paul talks about the Old Testament ritual, specifically what's called circumcision. So I kind of jumped right into application there. Let's back up a little bit and let me explain the text here verses 25 through 28 Paul says in verse 25 he says for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law it's interesting to me how Paul you know he's, he's got all these arguments and he's talking about you know how law keeping can't save you and this is just more on that same note He's just unpacking more. And it's, it's, it's amazing to me how smoothly he moves right into circumcision here, talks about it, because that, that was an essential part to law keeping for the Old Testament Jews, even for the Jews in Paul's day. This is part of the argument. This is, this is law keeping. This is an identifying ritual for the Jewish people, for their faith. Circumcision, just like you might say, communion and baptism are identifying ordinances for the Christian church. Paul says, for circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But, says Paul, and this contextually, we're dealing with a, with a New Testament era. We're dealing with in the post-Christ reality of what Paul is addressing here. He says, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, let me, let me just quickly explain circumcision and its role in the Old Testament Israelite community. I know that talk about circumcision in a setting like this can make some of us uncomfortable, maybe a little queasy too, but I'm going to risk that because I want you to know the purpose of this ritual and why God instituted it. Circumcision began with Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham in the Old Testament that he would make Abraham into a great nation. And God promised Abraham great and numerous seed, more numerous on the earth than the sand on the shore, more numerous than the stars in the sky. Genesis 12 through 17 for more on that. And God gave Abraham a sign of this covenant. It was a sign of circumcision. The Israelites would cut off the outer foreskin of the flesh of the penis for all of their males as a sign of this covenant that involved seed. Seed comes from the male. Every Hebrew male of this covenant was circumcised. Therefore, the sign of the covenant and the expansion of the covenant promise involved all these circumcised Israelites proliferating around the world, males, passed down to them the sign of circumcision from Abraham to Israelite to Israelite to Israelite all the way to Jesus. And here, this is key. Everybody listening? 
Part of that seed, part of that promise involved an offspring of Abraham that would be a great leader, a great king, greater than King David, a male who would become even greater than than, uh, Abraham and bless all the nations of the earth, not just the Jews. It's not an accident, by the way. How does, how does the New Testament begin? Do you know? Could you quote that verse? Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's not an accident. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of this great promise to Abraham, signified in the circumcised flesh of the Israelites. Now, here's, here's Paul's point. Stay with me here. I know this is a bit technical, but stay with me because you need to get this. Paul's point here is that that circumcision is good. It's valuable if you obey the law. If you obey the law. It's actually the same argument that he used earlier. Paul says if you obey the law perfectly, you can be saved. If you hear the law and obey the law, then you can be justified. But you can't fail at any point with your obedience. If you fail at any point with your obedience, then you're toast. And the only person that fulfilled the law perfectly is the seed of Abraham, Jesus. You got it? You all got it? Let me say it this way. Paul is saying if you trust in the law instead of letting the law point you to Jesus, you're in trouble. If you trust in your circumcision instead of letting your circumcision point you to Jesus, you're in trouble. Why are you in trouble? The law can't save you. Circumcision can't save you. In fact, you know, and here's why Paul has to address this in his day. There was rabbinic teaching that would circulate in Paul's day that went like this. Circumcised men do not descend into Gehenna. They would say that Father Abraham actually stands at the gates of Gehenna, at the gates of hell, and won't let anybody who's circumcised go down there. Paul has to address that falsehood. And he's got to tell the people that circumcision can't save you. The law can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And Paul says it even stronger than that. He doesn't just say circumcision can't save you. He says in verse 25, if you break the law, and who doesn't break the law? If you break the law at any point, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. You become essentially a Gentile. And that's incredibly insulting to a Jewish person. Again, Paul's not trying to coddle them or, or puff up their self-esteem. He's not mincing words. He's not pulling punches. He's trying to awaken them to their need for Christ. So look at verse 26 here. Let's finish this up. So if a man who is uncircumcised keep the precepts, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Again, this is the same argument that we saw earlier in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. What Paul's doing there is he's leveling the playing field. He's leveling the playing field. He's trying to rip out those, those ethnocentric and those legalistic tendencies of the Jews. Paul is building a house. And the foundation of that house, you remember my analogy from last week? Sonia says I need to use more carpentry metaphors. So here you go. She likes these. Paul's building a house. 
He's, and the foundation of that house is what? The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and also the Gentile. So this, this argument about circumcision and how it can't save, it's, it's another piece of drywall in the house that he's building up to this argument that you need Jesus and you can't save yourself and you can't be saved by any other means other than Jesus. John Stott says it this way in his commentary that the false assurance that the Jews had in their circumcision He said, if the Jews' possession and knowledge of the law did not exempt them from the judgment of God, neither did their circumcision. To be be sure, circumcision was a God-given sign and seal of his covenant with them. But it was not a magical ceremony or a charm. It did not provide them with permanent insurance cover against the wrath of God. It was no substitute for obedience. It constituted rather a commitment to obedience, yet the Jews had an almost superstitious confidence in their saving power of their circumcision. And so then Paul says this, verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. This is more shade throwing from Paul. This is more tough talk. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Remember what I said last week about baptism? I think there's a corollary here. I try to say this every time I baptize anybody because I want the people even who are coming to see the baptism from outside our church to know that this this ceremony that we're a part of, it's, it's, and you know, it's actually kind of weird. You get in front of the church and you get wet and then you leave. Like, why do we do that? I want people to know that that whole ceremony, everything that we do in that, it's not salvation. It's not what saves you. The ritual, the rite, the, the tradition doesn't save you. It's an outward sign of an inward work. What is symbolized when you go underwater? What are we symbolizing there? Death to self. I'm giving up ownership of my life. And when they come out of the water, that's new life that they have in Jesus Christ. What's happened right there with their body when they're good, that's happened to their heart already. They've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. That's what's signified in baptism. And there's a corollary here. Circumcision was meant to be like that, an outward sign of an inward work. And the Old Testament prophets, even Moses in the book of Deuteronomy said that circumcision of the flesh is not what God desires, it's circumcision of the heart. God wanted changed hearts, ultimately, not just some some mark on their flesh. It's a heart that needs to be changed and made agreeable and obedient to the Lord. And Paul says, but a Jew is one inwardly. It's not about the outward. It's not about the physical. It's about the circumcision in the heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, Paul says, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law, not by hearing the law or trying to do the law. It's by faith, and that work is enacted by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says this. Look at the end of verse 29. I think this is so key. I think this might be the key to understanding everything that's going on in Paul's day. 
He says, his praise is not for man, but God, the one who is a true Jew. His praise is not for man, but from God. I think Paul puts his finger on an issue right there. I, I think Paul is saying to us, saying to his original listeners, all this morality, all of this heritage that they have that's wrapped up in what they're doing, all of this ritual, all of this law keeping, what's it for? What are they doing it for? They're not doing it for God. Why is it so important to them? They don't do it for God. They do it to receive acceptance or praise from men. They do it for the accolades of men. And Paul says it's not about pleasing man. It's not about morality and ritual and all these other things to please man. You need to be about pleasing God. And I'll just tell you right now, that is, that is so deceptive, even in our day. That is so much a part of what we can do as Christians, looking to please men and not please God. Let me, let's just ask a question. Let's talk application about Why do you go to church, Christian? Why are you here? Why do you sing these songs of praise to the Lord? Why do you listen to the Bible? Why do you pray? Do you do it to be admired by other people? Do you do it so that people will think, oh, that's a good person. They go to church. They go to that crazy church where the pastor gets all animated and harvests the cater. They must be serious. Do you go to church in order that people will think of you as good? Or do you go to church, this is the corollary to that, so that people won't think that you're bad. What's your motivation for being here? This is so deceptive, and it's, unfortunately, I think it's utterly true of many would-be followers. They don't follow Jesus for the praise of God or for reconciliation with God. They, they follow Jesus for the praise of men. They do it to please men. So write this down as number five in your notes. One final way that we find security in something other than faith in Christ. This is, this is a sneaky one. I'm just going to call it false security and people pleasing. False security and people pleasing. You might say instead seeking the praise of men instead of the praise of God. I want you all to listen to this quote. I'm going to read it for you, and I'm almost done. Stay with me. I want you to hear this, and I want you to ask yourself, honestly, this morning, is this me? Does this describe me? This is from Chad Walsh in his book entitled Early Christians of the 21st Century. Walsh says, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. We might replace that with, you know, beautiful strumming of the guitar by Pastor Ryan and those awesome guitar riffs from Adam McKenzie. The religion is a thing of pleasant emotional quivers. Divorced from the intellect, demanding little except lip service to a few 
harmless platitudes. Be good. Be a good person. Go to church. Walsh says, I suspect that Satan has called off the attempt to convert people like that to agnosticism. If a man travels far enough away from Christianity, he is always in danger of seeing it in perspective and deciding that it's true. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real thing. Can I just say as your pastor that that statement right there terrifies me. I agonize about that as your pastor. Jesus would call that tares among the wheat. People who are inoculated, vaccinated with a mild form of Christianity that keeps them from embracing the real thing. That, that terrifies me that that might be going on here at Harvest Decatur, going, with our, going on with our kids at Harvest Kids. John Stott says something similar in his book, Basic, Basic Christianity. I hope this isn't true of you. He says, you can believe in Christ intellectually and admire him. You can say your prayers to him through the keyhole. I did for many years, says Stott. You, sh- you can push coins at him under the door. You can be moral, decent, upright, and good. You can be religious and pious. You can have been baptized and confirmed. You can be deeply versed in the philosophy of religion. You can be a theological student, even an ordained minister, and still not have opened the door to Christ. You're not saved by your morality, Harvesticator. You're not saved by your heritage. You're not saved by going to church. You're not saved by your education. You're not saved by ritual. You're definitely not saved by people-pleasing. These things don't save you. Tell me if you've heard this before. The path to hell is paved with good intentions. You heard that before? Let me add to that. The path to hell is also paved with religious observation, with morality, with ritual, with things other than faith. It's possible in our world to be deeply religious and completely unsaved. God help us. God protect us from that. If you find yourself in that state this morning, if you find yourself here this morning, let me encourage you. Okay, you don't, you don't have to leave that way this morning. Give your life to Christ. I mean, really, open the door by faith. Believe in his death. Believe in his resurrection. Submit your life to him fully. Follow him. Serve him. Acknowledge him as the Lord of your life. Salvation is only possible by faith. It's only possible by faith. To all this, you might say, goodness, Tony, is there any advantage to having the law? Is, is there anything good about being a Jew? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? And it sounds like it's all bad, bad, bad in Romans 2. Is there, is there any advantage to us having the law, so to speak, from the New Testament era? in our New Testament era. Here's the question that you might be asking right now in light of Romans 2. Is the law even a good thing? Is it even good? Those are excellent questions. And I'm going to answer every one of them next week.